Good morning. I'm David, one of the pastors here. And our text this morning is John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. John 1, 6 through 13. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that these words are your words. And we pray that as we exegete these words together this morning, that, Father, uh, you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make these words alive to us. Help us to understand the meaning of the text. Father, we pray that uh, we will better understand our redemption in Christ, of all that means, of the richness of that. Father, we uh, pray that you would help us to see your glory in the face of Jesus. Amen. So last week, we began our study of the Gospel of John, and The plan is uh, for us to actually go through the first four chapters of John between now and Christmas. And we'll take a few weeks off at Christmas time and start right back uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, right back into the Gospel of John. The theme of the first four chapters of John is glory revealed, as you saw in the video. Now, this isn't original with us, um, but it aptly summarizes the first four chapters of this marvelous gospel. The first 18 verses of the chapter of John are collectively known as the prologue. Now, the prologue is an incredibly rich section. It helps us to understand the work and the person of Christ and our amazing salvation as believers. So to do this section justice, we actually broke it into three different sermons, 18 verses, three sermons. It's like a banquet that's bursting with flavor, and we don't want you to miss any of it by hurrying through it. The Apostle John writes from a different perspective than the other gospel writers. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. It's like Those authors are standing next to each other, and they're looking at a mountain, and they're describing that mountain. Now, John, the Apostle John, is describing the same mountain. It's just that it's like he's on the other side of that mountain describing it. He gives us a unique perspective on things. Last week, we saw what the objective was of John for his gospel, its purpose and its aim. In John 20, uh, 30 and 31, he says, 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. So Jesus, or John, I'm sorry, calls his readers to do, four, to do three things that he's saying in that verse. He is saying, he's asking them to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. Second, that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And third, that by believing, they have life in his name. As we study, John looked for four predominant words. Signs, believe, light, and life. Signs, believe, light, and life. These are recurring themes throughout the book of John, and he uses these to help us know Christ and believe in him. Last week, Pastor Chris, in verses 1 through 6, taught us about the eternal personal divine word who creates and sustains the universe and overcomes the darkness. Today, our text continues to unfold our redemption in Christ. There are four main points to the sermon. First, we'll see that our redemption in Christ is testified to by an earthly witness and the implications of that for us. Second, we'll see that our redemption in Christ requires the gospel call. We'll talk about what does that mean and what are the elements of the gospel call. Third, we'll explore how our redemption in Christ gives us the wonderful privilege of adoption and how that relates to the new birth. Fourth, the Apostle John will make it clear to us that our redemption in Christ is due to our regeneration by God. It's something that he does for us. We can't do it for ourselves. If you're not a believer, our prayer is that you hear John's words this morning See the signs and believe in Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings spiritual light and eternal life. For those of you who are already followers of Christ, our desire is that the words of John will give you a renewed awe of Jesus, of the incredible blessings that he heaps upon us, and that your heart will be encouraged and transformed by him. Let's jump into the text starting in verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So point one, our redemption in Christ is testified to by an earthly witness. In our text, uh, there's an important change in the narrative that we don't want to miss here. In verses 1 through 5, as I mentioned, we learned about the eternal personal divine word who creates and sustains the universe and overcomes the darkness. So we're talking about these, these uh, huge things, and then there's an amazing statement by contrast. There is a man sent from God. So the eternal personal divine word who creates and sustains the universe uses a finite mortal man to bear witness to the light. Mankind participates with God in his great work of redemption. He uses us to bear witness of him. This is an amazing thing. We're familiar with how Jesus commands us in the Great Commission to make disciples of every ethnos, every people group, 
And in Acts 1.8, how Jesus said, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But have we stopped to think about that? Why do we need to be witnesses of Christ? Romans 10.14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God's plan is to use mankind to bear witness of Christ. People will not call on Jesus for salvation unless they believe in him. They'll not believe in him unless they've heard about him. They'll not hear about him unless someone preaches. The word in Greek translated preaches here is caruso. It means herald. It's like a town crier who's heralding the news. And the herald must be sent. They're not speaking on their behalf, but they're speaking on behalf of another. No wonder then Paul in Romans 10 quotes Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach or herald the good news. John MacArthur says, people come to salvation by believing preachers, by believing the evidence they present, by believing other Christians who have taken the gospel to them and explained it and given the facts and supported it. And those who come to Christ come to Christ through human means. And say from that Old Testament text, of course, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We love the people who brought us the gospel. Now, don't let the wonder of this be lost on you. God uses human means to bear witness of the eternal word. It's both a command and a privilege to be part of God's work of redemption. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So who is this John? Well, the John here isn't the author, the, uh, the Apostle John. It's, in fact, the Apostle John never uses his own name in his gospel. Instead, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It reflects both his humility and also shows his close relationship with the Lord. The John referred to in verse 6 is John the Baptist. MacArthur says John is properly called the Baptist because he was sent by God to baptize repentant sinners in preparation for the Messiah's coming. Yet the purpose of all he did was to bear witness to Jesus so that all might believe through him. People believe in Christ through the testimony of witnesses like John. So what can we learn from the witness of John the Baptist? He's a model witness for us. We see three characteristics of his witness in verses 6 through 8. It should be true of all of us. The first characteristic of the witness is that he is sent from God. As we learn more about the story of John the Baptist in future weeks, we'll see that there's no doubt about that. His parents had never been able to have children and were past childbearing age. But God intervenes, and John the Baptist is conceived. His arrival is announced to his father by none other than the angel Gabriel. His ministry was prophesied hundreds of years before in Isaiah chapter 40 as the forerunner to the Messiah. He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So John the Baptist was sent by God, but that's true of all of us. We're not 
our own heralds, we are God's herald. Now, our birth wasn't proclaimed by the angel Gabriel, but as believers, we have experienced the miracle of the new birth. We're born again into God's family. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and he is there as a down payment of our inheritance. We're ambassadors of Christ. We've been commissioned to herald the gospel and make disciples of every people group. As witnesses, we are also sent from God. The second characteristic of the testimony of John the Baptist is that he bared witness of Christ. He wasn't the light, and he didn't confuse his testimony with either self-grandeur, hey, look at me, or self-depreciation. I can't possibly proclaim Christ to that person They're way smarter or more important or hipper than I am. John the Baptist was a herald of Christ. Christ was his subject. Christ was his theme. What is our subject and theme? What do we love to talk about? Are we more enthusiastic about our team, our hobby, our political views, our latest experience than we are about our Lord? The third characteristic of the witness of John the Baptist is that his aim was that all might believe. The aim of our testimony should also be that all might believe. We should be winsome and as compelling as possible. Ultimately, we know that the results belong to the Lord. Our aim, like John, is that all might believe. So what should we say? What do we tell people that they might believe? Now, It's very possible that there are folks here that don't know Jesus. And if that's you, if you're not a follower of Christ, we want you to know that Scripture tells us that God is our creator. He's loving, he's holy, he's just. And one day he will execute perfect justice against all sin. Scripture says that we have fallen short of God's perfect standard for holiness. We have all sinned. The penalty for our sin is death. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and rose again to show his power over death. God calls you to personally repent of your sin and believe in Christ. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So when we come to Christ in repentance and faith, God forgives us our sin and gives us eternal life. If you're not a believer, we don't want you to leave this place without hearing the gospel, which means good news. Now, if you are a believer, what I've just said are the basic components of the gospel message that you should be sharing. Now, don't worry if you say it perfectly. You know more than you think you know. Just start talking about Jesus. If you're still unsure about sharing your faith, then grab someone here in the church and take them with you. We help equip one another. This is how the local church, the body of Christ, builds itself up according to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Most of us remember when someone first told us about Jesus. They were earthly witnesses of Christ. The Apostle John starts where we start, humanly speaking, and that is our redemption in Christ was testified to by an earthly witness. 
Second point, in verses 9 through 11, we see that our redemption in Christ requires the gospel call. So what is the gospel call? To have the vocabulary to talk about this, I need to use two sets of theological terms. I'll define the terms for you, and it's going to be review for some, but new to others. The first set of theological terms is general revelation versus special revelation. General revelation is the knowledge that people can obtain about God by observation of themselves and the world around them. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation proclaims God's handiwork and gives evidence of the existence of God. This is general revelation. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that man is without excuse because of general revelation. In Romans uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 19 and 20, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So even unbelievers who have no written record of God's law still have in their conscience some understanding of God's moral demands. Wayne Grudem says, The knowledge of God's existence, character, and moral law, which come through all creation to all humanity, is often called general revelation because it comes to all people generally. Scripture, on the other hand, is special revelation. Special revelation is necessary for salvation. Grudem continues, Scripture nowhere indicates that people can know the gospel through general revelation. They may know that God exists, that he's their creator, that they owe him obedience, and they have sinned against him. But how the holiness and justice of God can ever be reconciled with his willingness to forgive sins is a mystery that has never been solved by any religion apart from the Bible. Nor does the Bible give us any hope that it ever can be discovered apart from the special revelation from God. The next set of theological terms are the gospel call versus the effective call of God. The gospel call of God is a general call for all mankind to repent. Scripture tells us that it's God's will that everyone should repent and be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So you may be saying at this point, now, wait a minute. If it's God's will for everyone to be saved, how come everyone isn't saved? So both Arminian and Reformed theologians say that there is something that God deems more important than saving everyone. According to Grudem, Reformed theologians say that God deems his own glory is more important than saving everyone, and that according to Romans 9, God's glory is also furthered by the fact that some are not saved. Arminian theologians also say that something is more important to God than the salvation of all people, namely the preservation of man's free will. So in a Reformed system, God's highest value is his own glory, and in an Arminian system, God's highest value is the free will of man. 
The gospel call then is the general call of God for all men to repent and be saved. The gospel call of God is often rejected. The effective call of God, on the other hand, is always effective. It's an act of God. So here are just six scriptures that help us understand about the effective call. There are many, many more. The effective call of God originates with God. Romans 8.30 And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The effective call of God calls us into fellowship with Jesus. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The effective call of God calls us into his kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 2 Peter 1.3, similar. His divine power has been granted to all of us that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We belong to Jesus because of the effective call, Romans 1.6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Those who receive the effective call are called to be saints, Romans 1.7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So now that we have defined our terms, general versus special revelation, the general or the the gospel call versus the effective call, let's go back now and let's look at, at verses 9 to 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the true light that we see there is Jesus. The world was made through him. But even though the world had general revelation through creation, the world did not know him. His own people, the Jews, had special revelation in the Old Testament scripture, but even they rejected him. John the Baptist bears witness of the true light uh, to them. He says that the true light is in their midst. The word light, in fact, is mentioned five times in our text today. It's mentioned twice in one verse. It says um, that uh, the light um, says the true light which gives light to everyone. Now, that's It's translated as light in both places, but it's really two different words in Greek. Uh, It's used as um, as a noun, and it's used as a verb. So it's used as a noun, and the word for light in Greek is phos, which is the light that's emitted from a lamp or a torch or a star or anything that's bright. It's the root of English words like phosphorus and photography. The second light is photizo. It's a verb which means to give light or to illuminate. The true light is Jesus. He's the false, the light, who gives photizo, illumination, to everyone. So if Jesus is the light who gives illumination to everyone, is everyone saved? 
Well, obviously not. It says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is referring to the gospel call, not the effective call. Even though everyone is illuminated, not everyone sees the light. Arthur Pink put it this way, when the sun is shining in all its beauty, who are the ones unconscious of the fact? Who need to be told it is shining? The blind. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness of the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. How solemn the statement that men have to be told the light is now in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. The gospel call is like the light of the sun, which illumines everything. But if you're blind, you can't see the light. Every one of us were once blind to the things of God. We were in the dominion of darkness ruled by Satan. But God didn't leave us there. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So the gospel call is like illumination from the sun, which we can't see if we're blind. The gospel call is important. Our redemption in Christ requires the gospel call. Grudem says, The gospel call is the means God has appointed through which effective calling will come. Without the gospel call, no one can respond and be saved. Before we go on to verse 12, I do want to mention one other thing about verses 9 through 11. We're going to see in these verses a theme that's developed further in the gospel of John. In verse 9, he talks about uh, Jesus is the true light, just as he is the true bread from heaven in John 6, 32 and the true vine in John 15.1. True means real or genuine. The Apostle John is showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes and expectations. D.A. Carson says, Thus the manna provided in the Old Testament was genuinely from God, but Jesus is the true bread, the ultimate and therefore the genuine bread from heaven. Israel was God's chosen vine, and John would happily acknowledge the fact. But now Jesus himself is the locus or stock of God's covenant community whose members must be related to him as branches. So also here any reader of the Old Testament would know that the law and wisdom give light. But John's point is that the word who came into the world is the light the true light, the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. But what happened? John says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Isaiah 65, 2 and 3 says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. This should cause us to pause. Jesus is the light that is illuminating the world, but some do not see it. Each one of us should ask ourselves, am I blind to the light? Am I blind to Jesus? Have I received him, put my trust in him? In John 12, 36, Jesus said, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is the gospel call to us all. We must respond by faith to this call, putting our trust in him. 
Our redemption in Christ requires the gospel call. Number three, our redemption in Christ gives us the privilege of adoption. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word but in verse 12 signals a big change. It's a dramatic shift. We talked about the dramatic shift in verse 6. Remember, we have been reading 1 through 5 about the eternal personal divine word who creates and sustains the universe. And we go from there to a mere human witness. In verse 12, we see another dramatic shift. From the unbelief of the Jews to the believing remnant of God's people, those who did receive him who do believe in his name. The word received in Greek is lambano. It means to lay a hold of, to take in order to carry away. To receive Christ is more than just intellectual acknowledgement of his claims. It means believing in his name, putting our trust in his character and person. We trust he is who he says he is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. MacArthur says, the concept of believing in Christ, another important theme for John will be developed in several passages of his gospel. His name refers to the totality of Christ's being, all that he is and does. Thus, it is not possible to separate his deity from his humanity, his being savior from his being Lord, or his person from his redemptive work. Saving faith accepts Jesus Christ in all that scripture reveals of him. Jesus has given us the right and the privilege to become children of God. We become part of God's family. We begin to take on his family resemblance. We don't deserve this. It's all because of his grace. Bible commentator Matt Carter says, We who were dead in our trespasses and sin are now brought into the family of God. Because of Jesus, we who deserve death are now made to share in God's inheritance as his children. We don't deserve this. We could never say, I have given myself the right to be called a child of God. Only Jesus can do it. He has authority to declare that sinners, God-haters like us, are now fully accepted children of the Father. The doctrine for becoming members of God's family is called adoption. Adoption is an incredible blessing. God could have saved us without adopting us as his children. He could have forgiven our sins and declared us righteous in his sight without adopting us. He could have imparted new life to us, caused us to be born again without adopting us. But in addition to all of these, these blessings, he brought us into his family. He called us his children. He made us his heirs. Romans eight fifteen through 17 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness of our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Old Testament saints didn't call God Abba, Father. Truly, God has given us grace upon grace. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Our redemption in Christ gives us the privilege of adoption. 
The fourth and final point, our redemption in Christ is due to our regeneration by God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Being born in the family of God is quite different than being born into a human family. Blood relationships, heritage and race, even the Jewish race are irrelevant to spiritual birth. It says, who were born not of blood. Spiritual birth is not the result of personal or sexual desire. Some people think that if you're really sincere, that's all that matters. But it says, who were born not of the will of the flesh. Spiritual birth isn't from human effort. Even if you try really hard. It says, who were born not, um, not of the will of man, but of God. We were introduced last week to the apostles' theme of the new creation. We see a related theme, and John's going to develop this further, especially when we get to chapter 3, that of the new birth. To become God's children, we need to become a new creation. We need to be born of the Spirit. We need to be born again. The theological term for being born again, God imparting new life to us, is regeneration. It's totally an act of God. Grudem explains, as the gospel comes to us, God speaks through it to summon us to himself. Effective calling. To give us a new spiritual life. Regeneration. So that we are enabled to respond in faith. James 1.18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Look at the way verses 12 and 13 interact with each other. Regeneration which is an act of God, gives us the right to be adopted. John Piper links regeneration and adoption this way. God not only provided the regeneration by which we are born again, but also the authorization by which we can lay claim to our inheritance as children, even though we are sinners. Here's a true story that I think illustrates the connection between regeneration and adoption. Shannon Brown talks about his decision to adopt a 10-month-old girl from China who had been abandoned the day after she was born. Shannon says, I think within a nanosecond of deciding to adopt, we knew what our daughter's name would be. In fact, I don't ever really recall discussing it that much. Perhaps it's because of why we chose to adopt. Our driving motivation was to rescue a little girl and give her a family with hope for the future. This helpless little girl who lives on the other side of the earth will receive all the benefits of being my child. I will clothe her and feed her. She will take on my name and receive my deepest affections. She will be the object of my love. My energies will be directed toward helping, instructing, and training her to be happy with the secure knowledge that I will never leave her. I will pour out my heart to introduce her to my Savior and to, uh, who can take away her sins and give her eternal security. Of course, all this is done as we completely depend on God and his strength. Where would we be without the love of God? Where would we be without him revealing himself to us in Scripture? Where would we be without him divinely sacrificing his own son and seeking us out to rescue us? So for us, and what this adoption is a reflection of, We only had one name to choose from, grace. 
So just like this little girl, there is nothing that we could do to become part of God's family, but he chose to adopt us, to give us his name, to make us the object of his love. That's grace. Ephesians 1 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Our redemption in Christ is due to our regeneration by God. Praise be to God. Our response is to give him our worship. In closing, the Apostle John wrote his gospel with three purposes in mind. He calls his readers to, number one, believe that Jesus is the Christ. Number two, that Jesus is the Son of God. And number three, that by believing, they have life in his name. In our text today, John continues to make his case, to present his evidence. He tells us more about what life in his name is all about. He gives us some characteristics of our redemption in Christ. He tells us of the witness of John the Baptist. It's an earthly witness, but he testifies of Christ. We had someone once tell us about Jesus. They shared the gospel with us and called us to repentance and faith. This was the gospel call. Many reject the the gospel call, but some do receive it through an act of God who illuminates our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. John also explained that our redemption in Christ gives us the tremendous privilege of adoption. We are adopted into God's family. We take his name, we show his family resemblance. We're thankful to him who has redeemed us to himself. Finally, we understand uh, that our redemption in Christ means becoming a new creation. This is entirely God's doing not by the will of man. This humbles us. We're eternally thankful to him who has redeemed us to himself. To God be the glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect on what you have done, as we reflect on our redemption in Christ, uh, we are motivated, first of all, to share the good news to be witnesses, to be heralds of your uh, great love for us, of the good news of the gospel. I pray that each of us will have uh, courage and strength to do that. Father, that we will be so overflowing with gratitude that it won't even be something we, we have to think about. We just do it. Father, I also pray that we would overflow with gratitude for you, for what you have done, for how you have purchased us, how you have redeemed us. Father, every day I pray that we just live in gratitude and worship to you for what you have done and what you're about to do. Help us as we worship you, that we worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.